opportunity this morning because at Christ Church Kirkland, again, part of the bigger family uh, that we're uh, joined with, we have Pastor Kevin McEwen, who is going to preach the word this morning. His wife, Deanne, is here. I'd like her to stand up so we can honor her. Those of you who are with us in our beginning wee days of growth, uh, when we were just a home group before we were launched and sent out, uh, Pastor Kevin and Deanne came to our home group and shared with us uh, probably one of the most important words that we heard uh, before launching. And, you know, if you were there, you could feel God just reaching through them and just encouraging them. You can do it. Go for it. You know, and we all felt that. We just kind of sat up like, you know, proud sons and daughters just saying, wow, thank you so very much. Because that's the heart that they carry. And I'm not sitting here trying to, you know, pump up the guest speaker or anything like that. That is who they are. And that's who they are to to Lisa and I. Uh, We love them, love them dearly. And they're going to come and share their hearts this morning. We love you. We honor you. Thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Man, it's great to be here. We, we've been looking forward to this for a long time since back at that home group time and so schedules being what they are it's always a challenge but we're so glad to be here we're so excited to be here with you uh i'm a little bit intimidated though because i mean everybody's so high tech around here i mean even glenn rogers has got his ipad thing and and smartphones and i just got this old-fashioned notebook so hope that's all right but it was so so interesting to drive here today because it's you know obviously we came from Chrysler's North Northgate and our car just practically drove itself here as we made this trip many many times and uh, but it's wonderful wonderful to be with you guys so exciting to see what God's doing and and I just got to say the atmosphere the spirit here is just so good you know Eric and Lisa what you guys are what you guys have done and, and, and all the rest of you, just the way you, the atmosphere of Christ is here in this place. And it's wonderful to come and be here and be a part of that today. Wasn't your pastor awesome at family camp? Man. Man, I so love that. Well, of course, Dustin was pretty cool too. Uh, but it's just great to see the next generation get involved in that. And, and uh, uh, you know, I forgot what I was going to say. Anyway, so I'm going to just dive right in here because I have a lot I wanted to say and uh, I don't want to keep you here too late. So someone said when Pastor Hammond was here, it was one o'clock. So I guess I've got plenty of time. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have a question for you today to start out with. Who are your friends? Who are your friends? So while you're thinking about that, let me just read a, de- a definition of what a friend is because I know you think you know what a friend is, but... But let me just, because Deanna and I love definitions. We love Webster's 1828 Dictionary. And I would, it's like one of the most used books next to the Bible on our shelf. So I looked it up in Webster's 1828, and this is what it says. A friend is one who is attached to another by affection, one who entertains for another sentiments of esteem, respect, and affection, which lead them to desire their company, 
and to seek and to promote their happiness and prosperity. So keep that in mind. So if you're a friend of someone, then there's some level of affection toward them, right? You desire their company. You want to promote their happiness and their prosperity. And they are someone that you would esteem and respect. Okay? So keep that in mind. Uh, And I'll ask you the the question again. Who are your friends? Who are your friends? Well, first of all, there's that when, when... when someone asks you a question and you're not sure how they answer it, what's the universal answer? Jesus. <laughs> I love that during the headlights look. Uh, Jesus? Yes. You're, you win. Jesus. Jesus is our friend, right? In fact, I want to read a portion of scripture here. This is John, uh, John 15. And Jesus tells us that he's our friend. This is uh, chapter 15, verse 12, the Gospel of John. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command. Now, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Jesus is our friend. He said that we're that, that, that he's friends with us. Do you consider Jesus your friend? Good. I love it in the message, the message translation. It says, I'm no longer calling you servants because servants don't understand what their master is thinking and planning. No, I've named you friends because I let you in on everything I've heard from the Father. I mean, he has shared everything with us, right? I mean, it's all in his word. He's given it all to us because he's our friend. Now, I want to read just a brief story here. One of my favorite authors, Brennan Manning. And... uh, Maybe we have some other fans here. All right. I think I've read just about every single book he's written. But I keep finding out ones that I, that I haven't read. So anyway, uh, so Jesus is our friend, right? So this, this actually is the foreword of, the, of this book. The name of this book is The Relentless Tenderness of Jesus. And then the, the foreword is written by Larry Crabb, who's a, he's a pretty well-known Christian uh, author and uh, psychologist. So, so he's, he's, he's just saying here, two personal encounters with Brennan have especially marked my life. And I'm going to skip down, although the first one's pretty cool, but I'm going to skip over that one. He says, the second encounter took place... It's not going to work if I don't wear my glasses. The second encounter took place on the balcony of a ninth floor hotel room. Brennan and I had just finished speaking to a pastor's convention, and we were enjoying a brief moment of quiet before leaving for the airport. Where to next? I asked innocently. I start a seven-day silent retreat tomorrow, he replied. I'm not leading it. I'm taking it. Brennan, help me here. I I know you're into that sort of thing. But how different are you after getting away for a week just with you and the Lord? And Brennan Manning, that's kind of one of the things he's known for is he goes on these silent retreats, which doesn't that sound like a great thing to do? Just go away. And he's going to go away for a week and just be with Jesus, silent. Anyway, that's... That's another story. Anyway, so how are you different from getting away for a week with just you and the Lord? 
Without conscious intent, Brennan gently cut through my American pragmatism when he answered, I don't know what it does for me. I've never thought much about that. I just figure God likes it when I show up. I walked away from that encounter more thirsty to experience the Father's fondness for me. Jesus is our friend. He just wants to spend time with us. He desires our company. That's what a friend is, right? Remember the definition? All right, who else? Who else is your friend? How about your spouse? Is your spouse your friend? Jan and I teach a pre-marriage class, and we spend one whole session on this, just talking about how your spouse should be your very best friend. We think it's critically important in building oneness together. And, and man, you know, I could just go off on all of these points, and I just can't do it. So, but in Song of Solomon, chapter 5, the woman is describing her husband. And she lists off all these wonderful attributes about her man. And then she finishes it by saying, Such is my lover, my friend. Our spouse should be our best friend. Deanne is my very best friend. And I have great affection for her. Back to our definition again. That's what a friend is. Moving on. Who else? Who else is your friend? How about your children? Now, some would say that we're not to be our children's friend, but to be their parent. Because if you're your friend, then they're not going to respect or obey you. In fact, I read an article one time that said, Our role as parents is really to teach, coach, and give our kids consequences when they misbehave. I do not agree with that. (laughs) Deanna and I definitely do not agree with that. If that's all you are to them, then the relationship, that's the relationship you'll have. You'll be a coach, and you'll have a team, and uh, they will most most likely perform well, and they'll probably turn out religious and legalistic. But life is about relationships. It's not about simply obedience so you can avoid consequences. I want a relationship with my kids. By the grace of God, we have that. I would say that my children are my other best friends. Because it's just like in discipleship. You know, the goal is friendship. Like I read before, Jesus said, I now call you friends. Remember he said, you're friends if you do what I command. Well, I now call you friends. So something took place there, and they became friends. My children are my best friends, and consequently, I love to promote their happiness and prosperity. Back to my definition again of what a friend is. All right, who else? How about your covenant brothers and sisters here? Are we friends? I hope so. Jesus talked often about loving one another, caring for each other's needs, and laying down your life for your friends, right? In fact, he said that if you truly love one another, it is the key to evangelism. In John 17, 23, he said, May there be, now listen carefully to this. May they be in complete, this is Jesus' great prayer, right? In John 17, his prayer for us to the Father. He says, May they be in complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now think about what he just said, and I can't take the time to get into this, but he said that they would know that you love them as much as you love me. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus, I mean, God, the Father God, loves his Son the same as he loves all of us. We could go off on that one. But our friendship with each other as believers is Christ's witness to the world. And I, I have many covenant friends, many people in this room. 
that I respect and I esteem. Good friends. All right, finally, who else? Who else are your friends? Well, how about sinners? Or whatever the politically correct term is now. Uh, unbelievers, uh, unsaved, pre-saved, whatever, whatever you're comfortable with. I'm just saying that the Bible says sinners, right? It says tax collectors too, but we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. But how are you doing with these friendships? Do we have any friends that don't believe the same way that we do or, or conduct their lives the same way that we do? You know, the Bible says, now think about that, but the Bible says that we are called to be transformed more into the image of Jesus Christ, right? In fact, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says that we are being transformed into his likeness. It's happening. We are in transformation. So we are becoming more like Jesus every day. The question is, Jesus was known as a friend of sinners. Jesus was known as the friend of sinners. So, how is that? And, and this one I want to get into. This is, this is kind of more my point today. How did he get that reputation? He didn't actually refer to himself that way, but that's what people referred to him as. That's what people called him. Yeah, Jesus, he's that friend of sinners. Well, what do, you, what do people say about us? Who would people say that you are a friend of? I know that for me, most people would say I'm a friend of Christians. I'm not proud of that fact, but that's just kind of the reality of my life. Uh, is it wrong to have, you know, to be friends with Christians? Obviously not. I mean, we just talked about John 17. But I've got to include the unsaved, unbelieving sinners into my life too. If I want to be more like Jesus. And I do. And I know you do. So how did Jesus get that reputation of being a friend? A friend to... And it's interesting that there's always this distinction that he was known as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Interesting distinction, which I'll get more into in a minute. But first of all, let me say this. The gospel of Jesus Christ that he brought was very attractive. It was positive. The gospel is non-condemning. It's full of grace and truth and love. The gospel is attractive. In fact, according to Romans 8, 19, the church exists to represent Christ and his gospel to the people in the world who are eagerly waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. Do you remember the verse, Romans chapter 8? The world is, is eagerly waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. They're, they're looking. They're waiting. They're, it's like they're on tiptoes expecting they want to know about Jesus. They want the sons and sons of God to be revealed and so that they can talk to them about Jesus. Why? Because people are looking for good news. I mean, there's enough bad news, right? And people's lives are full of bad news. So they're looking for good news. But unfortunately, all too often, the church has been the bearer of the bad news. And that's not very attractive. But Jesus is attractive. Jesus is very attractive. I mean, he was always surrounded by all kinds of people. Church people and non-church people, good people, bad people. Seems everybody wanted to be with Jesus, right? I mean, as you read the Gospels, he was always with a bunch of people. It was not unusual for him to be at a gathering that included the religious people of the day, the sinners and tax collectors, his disciples, various other followers, 
you know, people just trying to find out what, what this guy's all about. I mean, he was always surrounded by a bunch of people because he was attractive. And the question is, are we, as his representatives, are we attractive? Well, why was Jesus so attractive? I think the primary reason is this. It's because he knew how to love people. Genuine, selfless love is irresistible. It's attractive. Blaise Pascal, the the noted Christian uh, philosopher in the 1600s, said this, The gospel to me is simply irresistible. It's so attractive. I want to read another portion of scripture here. This is from John chapter 1. So we were, we, we were reading in John 15, now John chapter 1, and just, and just talking about Jesus. Okay, so beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Talking about Jesus here. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Skipping down to verse 14. The Word, that's Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, notice in these verses, three different times in these four verses, it talks about Jesus came with grace and truth. And actually, uh, grace is mentioned three times. Truth is only mentioned twice. So, but all too often, we Christians come to people with truth first. But in that, por- in that portion of Scripture, it's grace and truth. You notice the order? That's an important distinction. We come to people all too often with truth first. And grace, they can earn if they, if they do some things right. But what did Jesus do? Well, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. He took initiative. I love what it says in the message again. It says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Jesus became flesh and blood and moved right into the neighborhood. Now think about that. And then think about these two verses. Galatians 2.20, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And and Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus became flesh and blood and moved into our lives Jesus in me, and we're to be the hope. Christ in you has moved into your neighborhood. Christ in you has moved into your workplace, into your families, into your neighborhoods. So how does God want us to relate to the unsaved or unchurched people? We are representing him. We are representing him. But see, we have a problem. Unlike Jesus, we are sinners, right? Uh, Pastor Dustin came to Christ Church Kirkland a few, few weeks ago, and uh, when he was preaching, he said this. He said, it's not that we are too holy to hang out with sinful people. 
it's more likely that we are not holy enough. See, the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So he could hang out with the worldly, sinful people of his day and not be tempted, right? But we, just like Jesus, need to know who we are as sons and daughters. He could do that because he was firm in who he was as a son of God, right? We need that too. We need to know who we are without a, any doubt. I am a son of God. And all that goes with that, which is another message. But, but then, once we have that understanding, then we must, we have to go out there and hang out with the worldly people, the sinful people, just like Jesus did. And, and become their friends. Because that's what Jesus did too. That's what he demonstrated for us. Well, the second problem we have is that we have to deal with our tendency to judge. We can be so judgmental. We have to become more like Jesus. Jesus said, I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. But us, us saved Christian righteous people, we can be so judgmental. Am I the only one? I mean, the only people Jesus judged were the self-righteous religious people. But we can become so good at distinguishing the righteous from the unrighteous. You know what I mean? I mean, I can walk down the street and I just find myself judging people. You know, it, and I just, uh, I get disgusted with myself. So I want to say, stop it. Jesus loves that person. Change your perspective. So I'm preaching to myself today. We've got, we've got to get this. I've got to get this. How did Jesus relate to those people who are not his followers? Those that were lost in sin. Well, he took initiative. He took initiative to be their friends. He made friends with them. Some examples. We can, we can think of Zacchaeus. Right? Jesus is walking along. The crowd's everywhere, right? And sees Zacchaeus up in the tree. That, that, that unscrupulous tax collector guy. And he says, hey, come on down here. I'm going to eat lunch at your house today. I'm staying with you. Now, you've got to understand, and, and I, I've, I've done some reading on what a tax collector was, and I, I can't take the time to get into that, but they were like the worst of the worst. I mean, they were the scum of the earth. They were hated more than any other, you know, sinners. Because they were actually stealing from their own people, in, and, and, and they had the, the authority to do it from the government. To, and, and then the money they would get is what supported the oppressive, the oppressive regime that the Israelites were under. I mean, they were hurting their own people and getting rich in the process. This is a tax collector. Way worse than tax collectors today. <laughs> they, were the, they were the scum of the earth. In fact, I've heard them compared to human traffickers of today. That's how people felt about them during that time. They were the worst of the worst. But what did Jesus do? He went after them. He befriended him. Think about that. And this made the religious people very upset, as you can well imagine. Think about that today. If we went and we saw that human trafficker on the street somewhere, and we went up to him and said, Hey, I'm going to come to your house and have dinner. What would your friends think about that? That's what Jesus did. How about that other tax collector, Levi? Remember him? Not you. 
No, this is, this is Matthew that wrote the gospel, right? Look at this in uh, Luke chapter 5. This is amazing. Jesus went out. This is uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. You know, it seems like Jesus kind of went after the worst of the worst. And he says, follow me. Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Now, whoa. I don't know how that happens. But only Jesus, you know. There must have been something going on with Levi, obviously, before that. But nevertheless, Jesus went up to this tax, sitting at his booth. And those guys that sat at booths, they were like the worst of the worst. Because they would, these guys would just randomly stop people. And they had the, the Roman guards and stuff. They could do whatever they wanted. They would just randomly stop people and look through their goods and say, uh, I need a tax on that and that. And by the way, you're walking down this road, I'll take a tax for that too. Just robbing their own people. So Jesus goes up to him in his booth and says, come on, follow me. So he did. And I don't know what happened. But then it says, Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Notice how they always distinguish. There's the, there's the tax collectors and there's just the regular sinners. Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Can you hear the heart of God here? I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Levi throws this big party. Think about this. He's just barely saved, right? And he throws this big party. Who's going to be at this party? All of his friends. All of his other tax collector friends. And all of the other sinners. Well, what do sinners do at parties? Well, we know that it says that they're eating and drinking. So whatever that means. And who knows Who knows what all things were going on there? But did that dissuade Jesus? No, he, he went right and he went for it. And of course, the religious people didn't like that. And then they confront him about it. And I just love his response. Hey, listen, this is why I came. I mean, I'm the doctor. I've got the cure. I'm going to where the sick people are. Right? Jesus was not afraid to be around the sinners of his day. He knew that that is where he needed to be. In fact, that is why he came. It's why we're saved. It's why we're sons and daughters of God. The world needs us. They're waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. Now, Jesus was always around crowds of people. It's just amazing to me. You start reading, you know, or maybe I should say crowds of people were always around Jesus. Because that's really kind of really more the way it was. It's just wherever he went, there was a crowd. He couldn't get away from them. He was so attractive. I mean, from the get-go, when he first kind of went public at the wedding, right? Crowds of people. He even brought the best wine. Think about that for a minute. There was a, then there was the party at, at the Pharisee Simon's house where Jesus was interacting with a known prostitute who brought him expensive gifts of perfume and washed his feet with her tears and her hair. I mean, the religious people just love that. Can you imagine? And then... Of course, Luke 15, one of my favorite portions. Once again, you know, a crowd of tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. I mean, every time he turned around, Jesus was at a party. He went to where they were. 
Why was, why was Jesus always in these kinds of situations where all kinds of people were crowding around him just to be with him? I mean, I'm sure he didn't organize these events. He just kind of showed up. I thought, well, maybe it's because people are looking for miracles, you know, back then. But it's interesting that all these stories about when Jesus was at parties, it doesn't say anything about him healing anybody or miracles. It doesn't really talk about that. What it talks about is his interactions that he has with them and the different things that they talk about. It more focuses on on Jesus, you know, being a friend and building relationships. Let me ask you a question. If you knew someone who was a devout, godly person, someone who, as far as you could tell, was perfect and always did the right thing, always said the right thing, never sinned, let me ask you, would you invite that guy to your party? With your friends? I don't know if I would. Because I would think that that guy's going to come, he's going to judge me, he's going he's to put a damper on our fun, he's, we probably can't have that glass of wine with him here, and, and all this stuff, right? I mean, we would expect him to criticize us and judge us in some way. I know I would be intimidated by that. Yet, that wasn't the case. Jesus, his reputation was that he was the friend of everybody. And he was invited to all the best parties, I'm sure. In fact, he was probably at the top of the list. Hey, Jesus is going to be there, man. I'm, who knows what that's going to be like. Let's go there. Something unusual, something unexpected. You know, people can tell. You know, he was, he was obviously liked by people. And, you know, if you, if you felt, feel judged in some way by someone, do you want to be around that person? No. I mean, you're repelled by that person, right? You'll run the other way. Yet, all these people, these non-believers, Gentiles, whatever you want to call them, they were attracted to Jesus. They obviously wouldn't feel judged by him. So we can, judge, we can change that perception. His reputation was that he was the friend, Right? People can tell if you're genuine or if you're just wanting to get something from them. And unfortunately, we Christians have a reputation of wanting stuff from people rather than just genuinely caring about them, right? The Master's Commission, the, the group of young people that, Dan, that Deanna and I lead, they, they go down to, to downtown Kirkland every week just to go and pray for the city and pray for the businesses and stuff. And uh, what, it's interesting. The first time they go into a place, you know, they just go in and say, hey, you know, introduce themselves. We're from Christchurch Kirkland. We're just, we're just here to pray for our city. So we want to pray for the businesses. How can we pray for your business? And the response, 99 times out of 100, usually is, what do you want, money? What, what do you want? What do you want from me? And I don't know. It's not that. You know, we just want to pray. We're just, tell us how to pray for your business. That's all we want. And they have a real hard time accepting that. Some of them do, and, and, and they give us really good things to pray about, and we pray about them, and God does things, and, and some people have been, you know, genuinely uh, uh, affected by the gospel in a really positive way. But, boy, you've got to get through that initial resistance. Well, let's look at one example of how Jesus related to a mixed group of people. I, I talked about Luke chapter 15, one of my favorite portions of Scripture, uh, beginning in verse 1. This is how the Amplified uh, Version says it. I just love this. Now, the tax collectors and notorious and especially wicked sinners were all coming near to Jesus to listen to him. The tax collectors and the especially notorious evil blah, blah, blah 
were gathering around him. It wasn't saying that he's gathering them up or trying to talk to them. No, they're coming to him. They're they're gathering around him to to hear what he has to say. Isn't that amazing? And of course, the Pharisees and scribes kept muttering and indignantly complaining, saying, this man accepts and receives and welcomes preeminently wicked sinners and eats with them. Which was a really intimate thing to do back then. I mean, they're just indignant. But what was Jesus' response to all these people that he was with? All these weird and wonderful people. Well, first of all, it says that he accepted them. He accepted them. He didn't reject them in some way because they were sinful. I could go off on that one. Um, I'm not going to. But, you know, he was accepting of all kinds of people. And obviously they were drawn to him. And then secondly, it says he received and welcomed them. So he was not only just okay with being around them, he enjoyed being with them. How about that? He enjoyed being with these people. People can tell. They felt welcome in his presence. And then, so they're all gathered around, right? What do you have to say, Jesus? What do you have to say? And, and he starts telling them stories. Things that they could relate to. He talks about a lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son. Remember, what, remember the portion of scripture? And I'm sure that there was probably farmers in that crowd that, that could really relate to losing one of their animals. I'm sure that there was, that there was uh, a parents there who could really relate to losing the son. And, I'm, and I know there was probably husbands and wives just trying to make ends meet that could really relate to the, lost, the loss of money. And so he, he shared with them right where they were at. And notice this, that in that whole portion of Scripture, at no time did Jesus condemn anyone or command them to repent. No, he was telling them what Father God thought about them. And what he felt about them as lost sons and daughters. When one of my lost sons and daughters comes, we're, we throw a party. The, the father, you know, I'm, you know the prodigal son story. It's a celebration. He's, he's telling them who they are versus who they're not. We've got to get better at that. He demonstrated his love and his care for them. Not just his goal to get him saved. This is even more important in these postmodern times that we live in now because people are, are not predisposed to, to uh, Christian beliefs like they used to be. Maybe, even 40 or 50 years ago. Times are different. Many people, are, they're, they're second generation unbelievers. Never even grown up, never even heard about it. Have no uh, paradigm to put this in. People have to know that you care before they care what you know, right? That's called grace before truth. If you tell people who they are, rather than who they aren't, they will more likely want to be around you, and they will be more open to the truth you have to offer them. It's like an equation. If you tell people who they are, plus you don't tell them who they aren't, equals they're going to want to be around you and hear from you. And the devil's always right there to tell them who they aren't. 
bring guilt and condemnation on it. They get plenty of that. I want to read you another story here from Brendan Manning. This book's called The Furious Longing of God. The power of telling people who they are versus who they aren't. Back in the late 1960s, I was teaching at a university in Ohio, and there was a student on campus who, by society's standards, would have been called ugly. He was short, extremely obese, he had a terrible case of acne, a bad lisp, and his hair was growing like Lancelot's horse in four directions at once. He wore the uniform of the day, a t-shirt that had been washed since the Spanish-American War, jeans with a butterfly in the back, and of course, no shoes. Remember, this is the 60s. In all my days, I have never met anybody with such low self-esteem. He told me that when he looked in the mirror each morning, he spit at it. Of course, no campus girl would date him. No fraternity wanted him as a pledge. What a sad case. The story I'm about to tell you is what Larry got for Christmas one year. Christmas came along for Larry Mullaney, that was his name, and he found himself back with his parents in Providence, Rhode Island. Larry's father is a typical lace curtain Irishman. Now, there are lace curtain Irish and there are shanty Irish. I think we're more the shanty Irish. A lace curtain Irishman, even on the hottest day in summer, will not come to the dining room table without wearing a suit, usually a dark pinstripe, starched white shirt, and tie swollen at the top. He will never allow his sideburns to grow up to the top of his ears, and he always speaks in low, subdued tones. Well, Larry comes to the dinner table that first night home, smelling like a billy goat. He and his father have the usual number of quarrels and reconciliations, and thus begins a typical vacation in the Mullaney household. Several nights later, Larry tells his father that he's got to get back to school early the next day. What time, son? 6 a.m. Well, I'll ride the bus with you. It's on my way to work. The next morning, the father and son ride the bus in silence. They get off the bus, as Larry has to catch a second one to get to the airport. Directly across the street are six men standing under an awning, all men who work in the same textile factory as Larry's father. They begin making loud and degrading remarks, like, Oink, oink, look at that fat pig. I tell you, if that pig was my kid, I'd hide him in the basement. I'd be so embarrassed. Another said, I wouldn't. If that slob was my kid, he'd be out the door so fast, he wouldn't know if he's on foot or horseback. Hey, pig, give us your best oink. These brutal salvos continued. Larry Mullaney told me that in that moment, for the first time in his life, his father reached out and embraced him, kissed him on the lips, and said, Larry, if your mother and I lived to be 200 years old, that wouldn't be long enough to thank God for the gift he gave us in you. I'm so proud that you're my son. First time I read that, I bawled. It would be hard to describe in words the, comp- the transformation that took place in Larry Mullaney, but I'll try. He came back to school and remained a hippie, but he cleaned up the best he could. Miracle of miracles, Larry began dating a girl. And to top it off, he became the president of one of the fraternities. By the way, he was the first student in the history of our university, university to graduate with a 4.2 grade point average. Larry Mullaney had a brilliant mind. Larry came to my office one day and said, tell me about this man, Jesus. And for the next six weeks and half hour increments, I shared with Larry what the Holy Spirit had revealed to me about Jesus. At the end of those six weeks, Larry said, okay. June 14th, 1974, 
Larry Mullaney was ordained a priest in Providence, Rhode Island. And for the past 20 years, he's been a missionary in South Africa, a man totally sold out to Jesus Christ. Do you know why? It wasn't because of the six weeks of sitting in Brennan Manning's office while I talked about Jesus. No, it was because of a day long ago, during our Christmas vacation, standing at a bus stop, when his lace curtain Irish father healed him. Yes, his father healed him. His father had the guts to get out of the foxhole and choose the high road of blessing in the face of cursing and taunts. His father looked deeply into his son's eyes, saw the good in Larry Mullaney that Larry couldn't see for himself, affirmed him with a furious love, and changed the whole direction of his son's life. Man. God help us. God help us see the good in people that they cannot see for themselves. We have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We should have a little discernment. Don't you think? We should be able to look past the exterior junk and hear the heart of God for that person and go after him. Not trying to get him saved, but just like Jesus, go after him. Take the initiative. Become friends. Enjoy him. I'm reminded when the Pharisees brought to Jesus the woman caught in adultery. What a scene. What a scene this was. Of course, as always, there was a crowd around Jesus, right? And they made this woman stand before the group. I mean, she was no doubt shamed and humiliated, probably beaten by this time as they dragged her through the city to, to bring her before Jesus to try to entrap him in some way. But what was Jesus' response? There was no condemnation there. There was no judgment. Instead, he confronts the ugly crowd, the religious people. And then he turns to her with grace and says, I don't condemn you. Now, go and sin no more. So, he brought grace. He saved her life. I call that grace. And then, he does tell her the truth. You need to go and sin no more. Look at this mess has gotten you in. Look what your sin has gotten you into. Go and sin no more. So, he brought the truth. But it was with grace. It's not some wink at sin. Okay, we're not talking about that. But what it is, is effective transformation. It's grace before truth. So what is our response when we're confronted with a sinful person like Jesus was? Many times we're more concerned about behavior modification than we are with spiritual transformation. Right? I mean, we just want people to act right so, we, so that we can be more comfortable. But are we full of grace and then truth? Do we see them as Father sees them, as lost sons and daughters that need to know who they really are? Do we, do we confront them with truth or do we lead with grace? Now, as I said, you know, we're not to condone sin and say it's all okay. That would be terrible. Sin is destroying people's lives. So we're definitely not saying that. But what we're saying is lead with truth. Love people. Love people where they're at. And then God will open a door. 
and the truth of the good news can be shared. Because ultimately, people are wanting that. The fact is, the good news really won't be to people who don't know of the love of the one who brings it to them, and especially to the, the one, Jesus, who brought it. It is only about getting, if it is only about getting your life in, in right order, frankly, people just really don't care that much about that. So if we lead with get your life in order, behavior modification, that, you know, that type of stuff, people don't care. But if it's about God's unconditional love for them and that God cares about everything that concerns them, people will be interested in that. And then the, you, you walk through the door to, to deliver the truth of God's word and see him set free. You know what? I don't think the whole, the whole turn or burn philosophy works anymore. Not in this postmodern time. People think they already are in hell. So they really don't care that much. And some people, the way they're living their lives, it's a living hell. They're well aware of that. They don't really need us to tell them that. And they really don't care. What they need is to understand about the awesome, unconditional love of God who loves them enough that he wants them to be set free from their sin and the truth of God sets them free. One other thing I want to mention, Jesus was, was a despised and rejected for consorting with sinners, right? Are we willing to face that? Are we willing to possibly face that? Religious people don't like it that Jesus was friends with the worldly sinful people. But Jesus trusted his Father entirely and was fearlessly unmoved by others' opinions of him, whether good or bad. And he only did what, he, what, he, what his Father led him to do. So be more concerned with what Father God wants you to do. Where he wants you to go. What he wants you to do when you're there than what people might think about you. Overcome that, that fear of rejection and charge in there and befriend people. Now, you know, we can't be foolish. We can't just charge in there independently, uncovered and all those kinds of things. I mean, that's not what I'm saying. We can get ourselves in a mess. But be, sh- be sure that you're undercovering. Be sure that you're accountable. But don't be afraid to be friends with people. Don't be afraid to be, with, to be friends with people who need Jesus. They need you. They need the Jesus in you.